Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, our guest is Christine Yu, who is the director and producer of a remarkable new documentary, 26.2 to Life, about the San Quentin Marathon. And it tells the story of incarcerated men who are members of the 1,000 Mile Club, which is the prison's long-distance running club. They train all year for this 105-lap 26.2-mile race that takes place in the San Quentin Yard. The film was shot over the course of three years and with unprecedented access to the prison, and it is a truly remarkable film on a number of levels, and I hope that you see it and that everyone you know sees it because I believe this film has the power to move forward a national movement in the much-needed area of prison system reform, as well as inspiring personal transformation in all of us and reminding us all of the importance of second chances. Now, in terms of where you can watch the film, 26 to Life is going to be in theaters on September 22nd in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, and Boston, and then There's going to be a national virtual screening on September 29th through October 1st. And you can get more information about the film and watch the trailer of this film at sanquintonmarathon.com. Again, I strongly encourage you to check out the trailer. And if you can't make it to a theater in one of the cities I mentioned on September 22nd, Well, then get your ticket for the natural virtual screening that runs from September 29th through October 1st, and we'll include a link to the sanquintonmarathon.com website in the show notes of this episode. And now, let's talk about this remarkable new film with the equally remarkable Christine Yu. Here we go. Well, Christine, how are you today and where are you today? Hey, Jonathan. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, I am in a hotel room in Cleveland, Ohio right now. It is our second time to Cleveland, actually. We were here in March for the Cleveland International Film Festival, and we had such an amazing time at that point um, because we got to visit also a juvenile hall. Uh, at that time. So a lot of times when we do film festivals, we do take the time to do social impact work. And we are in Cleveland again, continuing that mission, going into prisons and sharing the film. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. I love this film. And I guess I want to start with when did you first getting interested in this topic? Wow. Thank you for that question. I started to get actively interested in prison issues in uh, over 20 years ago. Um, I had a friend who was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to 271 years in California State Prison. He was also fellow Korean American, and the guy could have been my brother. 
basically. We grew up, had very similar backgrounds, and that really started to make me wonder, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, this is a guy who's basically going to be carrying out the rest of his days inside a prison. And I became very curious as to what what does that look like? You know, how do you actually live a life with a life sentence? So, but the opportunity to explore that question came when I found an article in GQ magazine one morning. I woke up and I saw this article. The headline was, you know, the San Quentin Prison Marathon. And for whatever reason, it just really captured my imagination. And I'm a runner. I'm not a marathoner, nor do I want to be a marathoner. <laughs> but I um, certainly I could imagine the benefits of running to people in prison. And, you know, of course, from a cinematic perspective, running is, you know, a, a thing of beauty. And uh, so it immediately captured my imagination. I went online to find out more about the Thousand Mile Club, which is the running club that's featured in the film. I found the coach online. Uh, he was in Northern California, of course. And I contacted him immediately. I drove up and I met him. Mm -hmm. And But the first thing he told me was that I had competition. He was contacted by Condé Nast. Huh. And, you know, they were putting in a bid for making a story about the Thousand Mile Club. I mean, originally, I had wanted to do it as a motion picture, a regular narrative film, because that was a bit more my background. Um, but when I left, I, I told him uh, a little bit about my experience, uh, my vision, and you know, honestly, I, I told him, look, you know, this is a kind of classic David and Goliath situation. You know, I'm an independent filmmaker mm -hmm. uh, against Condé Nast, you know, a big behemoth machine. Uh, and I just said, well, but, you know, we all know who won that fight. And I drove back down to L.A. totally depressed, thinking that I would never have a chance to, you know, make this story. And a week later, he called me and he said that they wanted to go with me. Wow. Tell us a bit more about your own background in film growing up. You mentioned a little bit about, you know, you're a runner, uh, but tell us a bit more about you. Uh, I grew up in Iowa and in Memphis, Tennessee. So sometimes you hear certain words I say may sound like this. And certainly when I go back home, I will kind of slide right back in. Um, but uh, my big claim to fame up until this point is the fact that uh, my uncle was Elvis Presley's martial arts master <laughs> in Memphis. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, originally when I grew up, I never uh, really actually thought about going into film or the arts. Uh, I came from a family of professors and doctors, uh, but I was a competitive piano player growing up and had always done fine artwork. But originally, I thought I was going to be a, a, a Russian spy. Come on. And then I felt, and then I felt it. Did you really? Well, because I studied Russian. Yeah, I studied Russian language. And um, I uh, went to, uh, I went there to study. But, you know, I'm paranoid by nature. And uh, they kind of tell you that they're going to be watching you when you're over there to see how you react to certain things. And, you know, I. As you might maybe know by now, I'm a, I'm a bit of an adventurist. Uh, and um, 
so you know i i always like to find the underground of like what's really going on <laughs> and uh so at any rate i i didn't end up going in that direction for a variety of reasons um cuz you know one if you're a spy you have to be completely cut off from your family uh, I'm very close with my parents and my my uh, extended family. I, on, on my mom's side, we're all from Hawaii. So the uh, big ohana, uh, that's actually my uh, film company, Film Halau, you know, is from my uh, Hawaiian heritage. I did not see us talking about the possibility of becoming a Russian spy. So that's good. Uh, I always love surprises in these conversations. By the way, we'll get off this in a in a second here, but um Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. I I I always had aspirations to learn Russian specifically to read those two authors and then found that language to just be far too intimidating to actually really dive into. Thoughts on this? Speak, it's like speaking Latin. No, it's I, I you know, when I I went to high school that offered Russian language and I was mistakenly asked my mom like, "Hey, you know, what do you think I should take?" and she was suggested Russian. The minute I started learning the Cyrillic alphabet, I mean, I <laughs> I I had dark thoughts for my mom. <laughs> it was very very tough, you know, it was very tough, but um but actually when I was studying there, um they had a lot of people thought that I was from Central Asia, you know, and uh, so that was that was also very interesting. Yeah, who knows? You know, right now, I, I my, my life would have if I would have continued along that trajectory, you know, might have right now, especially uh, my life might have looked very different. Uh, yes. Yes, I think so. Um, OK, so Russian spidem. Russian literature, a competitive piano player, but I haven't heard that much about film and what then led you into that world. Uh, it actually kind of happened by mistake, to be quite honest. Um, I, I think I was always, you know, as a as as an artist, um, film. Kind of when I discovered it, it was the, you know, visual plus the audio. And there were endless possibilities. Of course, I always loved movies growing up. Like, I love, love, love going to the movies. But again, I never thought about it as like a job or a career choice or anything like that. Um, I eventually found my way to film school. I went to USC for film school and uh, originally was working in narrative. But, you know, it, it's very tough. I uh, ended up going to Korea for a number of years and working in the Korean film industry and was there at the beginning of the 2000s when the whole like Korean wave was taken off. You know, I saw it then and uh, made a first narrative feature that is completely the opposite of 26.2 to life. It was a, a Korean American rom-com wedding comedy called Wedding Palace. Uh, and it was I, I shot it part in Korea, part in L.A. And uh, yeah. You also made a comment that you find running to be particularly cinematic. And I think that um I think that's an interesting claim actually. We, you know, at Blister, we cover a lot of ski and snowboarding and uh kayaking. And I I always, in my view, always think that 
the whitewater kayakers kind of win in terms of just the cinematic insanity of what these folks are doing. And it just looks incredible. Um, you know, climbing sometimes, um, you know, big wall climbing just looks so dramatic. So I'd love to hear you speak a bit more uh, to your thoughts on the cinematic element in nature of running itself. Well, I guess it's because it's just the human body propelling itself forward and, you know, and the struggle that goes along with it. And running is also an incredibly mental and internal practice as well. You know, I know that when I go running, it's a time that uh, is meditative. It's a time when it's creative, actually, for me, like if I have a problem and I go running, a lot of times answers will come to me when I'm running. And running also is, um, you just feel better after you do it. So when I thought about that and thought about people in prison doing it, there was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that painting Van Gogh did called Prisoners Exercising. And it's just that they're in a little court, they're in a little courtyard. And it's just these guys in a circle. And when I first learned that it takes 105 laps to run a full marathon inside San Quentin, uh, I just thought about that painting and that image. And, you know, what kind of discipline, you know, fortitude, mental fortitude, it would actually take somebody to undergo, you know, and willingly, like if you choose to do that, you're a different type of person. You know, and I was really uh, just curious to see, you know, really what, explore what that was about. Hmm. That's fantastic. So let's get into it. Um, so you talk to the coach in our David and Goliath scenario, you get the green light to go ahead and make this project. Um, I assume at this point you had not met any of the incredibly compelling subjects the people in this film other than the coach is that right yeah so what happened um after frank uh said that you know he was interested in working with me we arranged for uh for myself and again at that time i was originally approaching this as a regular narrative motion picture so me and my partner to go inside the prison to observe a half marathon event and you know See, see what it was about. So we entered the prison and immediately I had been to Pelican Bay before this to visit my friend, which is the state of California's most maximum security prison. Very, very scary place. You know, going inside San Quentin, of course, I had trepidation, but I figured, you know, hey, the coaches go in obviously regularly. It can't be that scary. Um, and, but I will say as soon as I got into the yard, you do feel a little bit like you're watching over the back of your shoulders, like what's going on here. I mean, it's, you're in a big open space. It's an active yard. But as we got down to the scoreboard where the starting line is for the thousand mile club, runners were gathering, coaches were gathering. I felt a sense of festivity, festival-like atmosphere. And I was really it turned the idea of prison upside down for me in that moment. And I realized how much I don't know about prison and the idea of like festive inside prison. Like you don't think usually those two words in the same sentence, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, 
And then uh, he and start the coach started introducing me to a couple of guys. And one of the first people I met was Markel Taylor and just immediately started talking to him. Very soft spoken. He said that I reminded him of somebody that he knew from high school, was wondering if I was that person. Uh, and then I also met Rasan Thomas that day. He was um, working at the working at the newspaper uh, reporting on the half marathon. And as you can see from the film, the guy has a great sense of humor yeah. and he made me laugh. He made me laugh. And I was like, why am I laughing inside a prison? Like that seems so strange and weird, but then, you know, kind of shame on me for thinking also that just because people are in prison, it doesn't mean that they stop being themselves. You know, but everything that you see on TV, true crime, all of this stuff, which I've, you know, produced true crime too. And I realized that even though I know someone in prison, I had also dehumanized a lot of people and what that world is like. And at that, it wasn't at that moment, but a little bit afterwards, after I spoke with more guys, guys who had gotten out, other coaches, I realized I couldn't believe the stories, you know, I was hearing and what they were telling me. And I was like, man, you know, I just need to get out of the way. I don't need to do this as a movie. I want to do this as a documentary. People need to see and hear these stories straight from the source. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. And 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 you, you were using a phrase that I don't feel like those of us not in the film business hear all that. You said, Initially, I thought I would do a narrative. What what exactly did you say? A narrative. Oh, a motion picture. Narrative a motion picture. Movie, regular that movie. Was kind of. So you would have gone in, got got a lay of the land, and then thought, okay, how would I cast this? What actors would I want to bring in to sort of recreate this? And then once you're meeting some of these incredible people and seeing the actual landscape, that's when you pivoted and said, this is a documentary. We don't need to recreate. We need to capture this. Yes. I mean, I, I just, there were so many layers that I thought that I, you know, because I knew someone in prison, because I had done a lot of research on it. Uh, I thought that I was sort of had X amount of knowledge. I, I, I realized I knew nothing. You know, uh, I knew nothing. And I was really curious about this world. And again, you know, what does living life with a life sentence really look like? And I felt then that the med the marathon itself provided a great metaphor for, you know, the journey that these men take. Um, Tommy Wickard came in. So I had, you know, I knew I had to cast Markel Taylor, the gazelle of San Quentin, mm -hmm. because he was the fastest guy in the club. He was, he broke all the records. So yeah, he, he was in, I didn't know really anything about him, but I knew he was going to be in. Rasan again, I knew he was a writer. I went online to read, you know, figure out who this person was. I had read some essays that he wrote for like the Marshall Project and incredibly insightful and funny you know, very funny. And again, you know, for a person to be able to keep their sense of humor and wits about them like that through a 55 to life sentence, I thought that, man, this person is special. You know, I want to hear from this person. And, um, and then originally, I was going to try to follow somebody who was getting released and follow their reentry story. He did not want to be followed. So uh, one of the coaches uh, suggested that I meet uh, Marion Wickard, Tommy Wickard's wife, 
And I live in LA. And so on one of my drives up to the Bay Area, I met Marion. And I thought, you know, it was maybe going to be an hour coffee or something like that. Uh, she was in Palmdale. Uh, we ended up talking for like five hours, you know. And I thought, wow, how fascinating to explore this idea of family and what being a father and a husband is like from prison. So, you know, very grateful that they opened up their, you know, really their whole family to, uh, to, to the film. So with all this said, let's imagine you're on a bus somewhere and you sit down next to a stranger and you start talking. You mention that you make films and you mention your latest project and they say, well, what's it about? <laughs> how do you how have you been talking about what this is, you know, in a way to get people excited to go see it and help them understand, in fact, what's going on here? Because as you've already, I think, made pretty clear, there's a lot of stuff going on in this. You, you have gone into explore in effect a microcosm that is absolutely its own massive universe, right? Yeah, I usually say that the film really explores the transformative power of San Quentin's Thousand Mile Club, which is a running club that's made of incarcerated runners. Uh, they are coached by elite marathoners who are volunteers that come into the prison throughout the year. And they train these men, coach these men to run an annual marathon that takes place entirely behind the walls of the prison, 105 laps on the yard. And what happens in the process, though, this is not just a film really about running the marathon. This right. is about, you know, running and the marathon of life, actually. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the film does take you take us off the track into the cell block. And we explore what led these men to the starting line at the marathon. Um, but, you know, I do want to note that among the released members of the club, there is a 0% recidivism rate. Mm. The national average is 67%. Yeah, why? And, you know, you know my, uh, when, when my friend got locked up, and just knowing how I felt as an individual, felt feeling completely powerless to do anything to help him really in any type of significant way, um, really not knowing how to interact with the system. I mean, the prison system, how do you actually interact with something like that? Um, so when I got to know the coaches and saw what Frank has done in terms of his you know, used his passion of long distance running to create a community of people behind the walls. But then they have this amazing uh, bridge. They provide continuity as well for people as they get released. And so this is truly a community of people that like, you know, if you cannot change the prison system, what it taught me is that you can certainly change the people around you. You can, and that creates different community. And I'm not just talking about changing the incarcerated people. The volunteers also are transformed yeah. in the process as well. Yeah. You mentioned that you thought you had a pretty decent understanding of prison, prison life, some of those dynamics. And you said that this project 
exploded a lot of what you thought you knew. Can, can you speak a bit more to going into the project when you say you thought you had a pretty good handle on things? What, what did you have in mind when you said that? Well, I guess, you know, knowing somebody in prison, having received a lot of letters from them, descriptions of, you know, kind of what their lives were like, I thought I kind of had a feeling for what the rhythm of, you know, prison was like. But I really didn't know, you know, prison is a whole world. Obviously, we've seen a lot on TV, but there's a lot that you don't also see on TV. And um, I will add, though, San Quentin is also a very unique place. Uh, it's not like any other prison out there. Um, of course, we hear the word San Quentin, and most people think of a place of notorious violence. Uh, over the years, it has been transformed in more into a rehabilitation type of facility. Uh, the, it's located right in the Bay Area, in Marin County, one of the richest counties in the United States. So it's a, it's very well resourced. They they have um, they're open to community engagement. And, you know, a lot of people doing decades of time lose touch with their family. They, uh, you know, when you put one person in prison, you actually put the whole family in prison. So, you know, but a lot of those families are destroyed in the process. It's financially, of course, very difficult. Um, most prisons are very remote, you know, so family bonds, you know, are strained and break down over time. And what these volunteers do is that they keep those connections for these guys to the outside world. A lot of guys, they don't even know that pay phones don't exist. A lot of people think pay phones are still out huh. there. Okay. Huh. Interesting. So the volunteer component at San Quentin is a rather exceptional or extraordinary situation, not at all a common situation among prisons. Is that or do I have that right? Yeah, I think San Quentin, just because most prisons, part of the punishment is to be in the middle of nowhere is to be isolated. Gotcha. So that is, you know, and then you're in a situation where prisons are in small towns. So then the most people who work at the prisons are people who work in the small towns. You know, that's the only jobs available. See, then you've got this dynamic inside of, you know, this prison is also holding up the local economy. So, you know, it, it's beneficial then to the local towns to have that prison in existence. You know, so these are the very complex issues, you know, but if we want to decarcerate America, we need to start examining these paradigms and, you know, really see what how how we've built this system in order to dismantle it. Yeah. Do you think as a country we do actually want to decarcerate America? Yes, we have to. We have to. We don't have a choice. We know we know it's not working. We know it's not working. We've got we've got the highest rate of incarceration almost in the world, you know. And we also know that what what I learned going inside is that all of the things that make people successful, okay, access to education, usually some kind of family or mentor, somebody that a person can go to, to help with this person's success. Um, usually these sort of are the cornerstones of success. 
if we look at people in prison, they are are they are our as a society, they are our failures, right? And if you talk to people in prison, most people don't really have access to good education. They really have not had family bonds. And a lot of that is then turns to drug use. Those are the three common mm. factors, you know, and, and, and overwhelming poverty, right? Those are the factors that create incarceration. So um, there's a phrase, you know, it, that you learn, very simple phrase that says, um, they say, hurt people, hurt people. You know, cycles of violence, you know, which are learned in the household, you know, just continue over time. And so, you know, how do you actually break that? You know, instead of punishment, I think we have to look at how do you actually do something to, you know, as a society, we have to learn how to heal ourselves. Um, and, you know, just locking up, throwing away the key. It costs a lot of money. Yep. In the state of California, it costs like, you know, $85,000 a year. Yeah. And I guess my question, my question about do you think we do actually want to decarcerate America is that it is in many cases a for-profit industry. And we've seen in this country how difficult it is to dismantle an industry when a lot of money is involved, right? So this is completely messed up. It's completely messed up and immoral, I would argue. But what can you tell us on that really, really dark yet fundamental front where, hey, turns out prisons are a pretty good business. You just need to fill them up. That's the unfortunate model that we've that we've relied on in this country, which is ultimately, you know, a legacy of from slavery. You know, I mean, of course, inside prisons are overwhelmingly black and brown. I think everybody knows that, you know, um, but corporate profit and certainly private prisons. I don't know anything about private prisons except for, you know, different literature and things that I've read, but I've never been inside a private prison. So experientially, I don't have that kind of, you know, anthropological or on the ground type of knowledge. Um, but, you know, I can tell you, at least inside the California prison system, you know, these guys are working there for six twenty three cents an hour. And, you know, most of the things that so, for example, a chair in University of California, Berkeley, uh, government furniture, these are all made by people in prison. I was at a Hilton hotel with uh, Markel the Gazelle, and he used to make furniture inside the prison. That was his job. We were sitting there in a Hilton hotel lobby in, in Cleveland last time we were here. And he was like, I can tell you right now that that, that, that couch, it was made in prison. I, I know how to make that couch. Wow. And he just broke it down, you know, right there. So that couch probably, you know, if it guys are getting paid 23 cents an hour, which is it's, you know, free labor. And then at the same time, they need jobs to supplement uh, just regular existence in prison because what the state gives you obviously is not enough to subsist on. Right. So, you know, here we are sitting in the Hilton Hotel lobby 
lounging on furniture that was most likely made by prisoners. We got to we got to stop and think about that. And so these guys down to the food they eat, like, you know, they're they're fed peanut butter and jelly several times a week. You know, that's their main lunch of that. That peanut butter and jelly is actually made by prisoners too. prison industry authority, PIA food. You know, usually I think the, the state of California, uh, it's what, a dollar a day or something has to be is the allowance or budget uh, for three meals. I'm pretty wrong on that exact figure, but it's like something like a dollar or no more than two twenty five a day or something like that. We'll move off of this question in a minute, but what are you seeing in terms of are you seeing positive changes in terms of prison reform at, at structurally? We're going to get we're going to turn to the transformative power of you know, what 26 to life is uh, depicting, but on, on the structural systemic level, are you seeing anything that um, points to a positive or are we still treading the same uh, dark waters? Well, we have to change the culture in this country. We have to create public will for change, which is, you know, when I saw the story of 26.2 to life, the story of the Thousand Mile Club, it gave me a lot of hope that there are people out there. They're good people. How many, we know a lot, you know, each one of us, we know a lot of good, that there are a lot of good people out in the world. Uh, I'm not just talking about people behind prison, but, you know, a lot of good people out in the world. We can, we can if we want, we can do great things, you know, and what was great about the Thousand Mile Club is that it really is a story of hope, a story of redemption, something positive that actually is happening. So if we can like look at what the Thousand Mile Club is doing, they're a great example of like how to replicate something. And we can we can change our system, you know, step by step. It's not going to happen overnight. It's nothing easy ever, you know, is, is overnight as we know. But it can be better than today. You know, tomorrow can be better than today, you know, and it is going to take each one of us individually to, you know, make that commitment to, you know, go volunteer or, you know, or, you know, help, help, you know, uh, continue the conversation, basically, because we just need to build awareness first. You said that when you first started going to San Quentin and meeting some of the individuals there and you were for example surprised that you know Rasan is funny uh and you said oh right yeah, these are you know if you and I and another thing from the film by the way you know hearing some of the stories of the people incarcerated I don't know how anybody doesn't watch that and think one bad evening one weird situation and we could find ourselves um behind bars maybe not san quentin maybe not life sentence except yeah maybe that too uh and that i think is an important thing you know and just recognizing like you cannot watch this film and simply think it's just it's fine it's just a bunch of monsters thank god we've isolated these folks you know from uh, the rest of us uh, super well-adjusted folks running around society. You, you, you can't, 
you can't have that kind of um, worldview, I don't think, uh, having watched this film. But what I also think, having watched the film, is that it does feel like when you are facing a life sentence, living that down day in and day out, you are going to likely rise or fall under that weight. Not maybe just stay the same person, right? That you are. Like, it seems like chances are good you're going one way or the other. Does that seem right to you from what you observed and the folks you met? Well, so in the state of California, there are uh, increasing pathways for people to get out of prison. For example, the elderly parole bill, because the data shows that as people get older, they age out of crime. Mm. The overwhelming majority of people who commit crimes are young. Because guess what? You got a lot of energy. You know, when you were 20 years old, I bet you, you did some stupid stuff. It turns you know, out you're right. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. Right. You know, so, you know, and as we get older, we're like, uh, we get, we want to sit on the couch more. I don't know. <laughs> Although this is off the couch, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, you know, people do change. You know, I went in here with the question, can people really change? And after having spent, you know, really five years inside that facility, uh, knowing people, observing people, hearing their stories, I can say with a resounding yes, that people do change. And here's the thing is that, you know, a lot of these men, in order to get out, they have to prove transformation, because that's what you have to do to go before the parole board. So they have to do a lot of really difficult internal work on themselves, self-help groups, you know, um, you know, psyche evaluations and a lot of really internal soul searching about what led them to that moment, you know, and, and have that insight about what what led them to that moment. And I would argue that some of these men, if they're let out, um, they can provide a lot of, you know, lessons. To, to us on the outside, I mean, they have done a lot more work on themselves than a lot of us out here will ever do, you know, obviously, because they have to, okay, in order if, if they want to parole, okay. But, you know, a lot of these men who have been through the work, they can be great assets to our society, they can provide great insight, they can be some of our best teachers. And so I do think that there has to be some kind of, you know, pathway for people, you know, if you're, it, for example, in the state of California, if you're 50 years old, and you've done 20 years, and you've got, I guess, you know, relatively clean record, at least you've got a chance for a parole board hearing. And I hope that there are measures like that, that can be more nationwide. I mean, the tough thing about our prison systems in this country is that it's state by state. Let's talk more about running. We were talking earlier about this sort of cinematic nature of running versus some of these other sports. But one of the things that's never lost on me, and it's the thing I love most about running, is it is kind of the most elemental thing you can do. You know, skiing turns out you need a whole bunch of equipment, right? Kayaking, you need a boat, you need rapids uh, to, to go do all this. Uh, running, you don't need anything other than a bit of room, which ironically in a prison is one of the things you don't have a ton of. Um, but 
Talk just a bit more about, I mean, when you mentioned that recidivism rates are normally 67% and you said, and I don't want to get this wrong, you said it's 0% among the released guys of the Thousand Mile Club. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, running is not an easy practice, as we know. So, you know, I think there's a bit of self-selection that goes on. So people who choose, you know, you're choosing to engage in, you know, as someone points out in the movie, running is usually other sports punishment, right? So it's, uh, oh, you're not doing well, go run 10 laps, you know, give, give, you know, so um, the people who choose to engage in this in something that they know is going to be challenging, I think says something about their character in the first place. But I will also will say this, a lot of guys who are in prison, you know, didn't necessarily, like I said earlier, they didn't necessarily have mentorship. They didn't necessarily have goals even. So you get a person who has never completed anything in their life and suddenly they can run five miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can run five miles. Guess what? You've got newfound confidence. Hey, I did that. I did, I, I did something difficult. With that newfound confidence, what you're seeing is now I have the confidence to get my GED. I can go through something difficult. I can see the other side. I can take on the challenge of reconnecting with family members because I've been through something difficult I, and I got through it. So what we've seen running do, what any of the coaches will tell you is that it ends up setting off sort of this positive chain reaction of events. You know, it's good for anger management. It helps your sleep. It helps with time management. You know, all these things It creates a, you know, suddenly if you're running and you want to get good, you're going to start putting, you know, only good things in your body, right? You're not going to, you're going to stay away from drugs. You know, you're going to stay away from the bad stuff that is obviously is in, you know, finds its way in prison too. So it, it sets off just a whole ecosphere of positivity. And then the running club itself is uh, multiracial and in prison politics, which is highly segregated, you know, the running club is the most multiracial club in the and so, you know, it allows people time to be in a, be in a community of diversity. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, a, it's a, and again, like you said, it doesn't take much. You know, when these guys, a lot of these guys first started, they were running in their prison boots. They didn't even have running shoes. But, you know, at the end of the day, it basically just takes a pair of shoes and, you know, that, that's it. So that, that's why we are hopefully also trying to help spark not only dialogue, but hopefully help uh, other prisons create running clubs. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been thinking about uh, one of the things that in, you know, white collar professional life, right? As, you know, everybody's out there trying to read self-help books and the latest, you know, literature and on longevity and lifespan and how to, you know, live what life well. You know, what's one of the things that we've heard the most about, I would say, in the last, you know, maybe three to five years, it is we need to be moving, right? We've talked about, again, for people getting paid good jobs to run companies and yada, yada, all the freedom in the world. The thing that is being um, hammered home is a sedentary, stationary existence 
really has all kinds of negative impacts on a life, physical and mental. And so it's very interesting that, um, you know, all the best uh, kind of advice and the podcasts that all the fancy white collar people are off listening to. Well, we're seeing the exact same thing uh, in San Quentin, right? That movement itself, um, you, you spoke really well uh, about the discipline and the way that that can inspire confidence, turn a bit of a light bulb on. Like, man, I remember when I would be out of breath after trying to maybe walk five laps at San Quentin. Now I'm, I just ran five miles. And now I'm going to start maybe thinking about setting my sights on the San Quentin Marathon. It's beautiful. But then also just the stuff that we all know is true about the, the mental benefits of movement in addition to the physical benefits. And it's like, okay, maybe no surprise that we're on to something here um, and that, that there have been such impressive results uh, from from those individuals who just take those first steps, uh, you know, with the the thousand mile club, it's it's beautiful. It, it really is, you know. I mean, the film starts off with a quote by Lao Tzu: "The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step." You know, nothing a journey, uh, nothing happens overnight, as we know. But you know, we need to just keep moving forward, not looking back and just keep moving forward. And, you know, I think the practice of running, what I've seen with the guys, it helps them really face life. Mm -hmm. You talked a bit about the hopes that maybe the Thousand Mile Club at San Quentin can serve as an example um, to create similar clubs across prisons everywhere. Um, talk more about the kind of reception you've seen and, and frankly are inspiring and working on yourself now. Yeah. I mean, of course, our greatest hope is to get more uh, rehabilitation programs introduced in prisons across America to reduce recidivism, because that's a viable way, a path to reduce our mass incarceration system and also help you know, people lead overall generally healthier lives. You know, when we were recently talking with the state of North Dakota, and they were saying that the overwhelming majority of people who are locked up in the state have addiction issues. One of the main reasons why they're, you know, uh, excited about the idea of perhaps evangelizing this idea of running is to replace that addictive high with that runner's high, you know, and it's just about creating good habits. And um, I make it sound so easy. It's not okay. We all we all know that. But, you know, the barrier for entry to create running clubs is is pretty low. You know, again, it just takes a place, hopefully a, a space and a yard to be able to do it. And some shoes. And if we can just start there uh, and just start, like you said, getting people moving and thinking about themselves, losing weight, you know, prison food is terrible. <laughs> a lot of carbs, a lot of, you know, just bad food. Um, so, you know, and as we know, it helps with if you're if you're moving a lot, that's going to help your mental health. 
And that mental clarity could, st- could help depression and any one of those things that happens to people in prison every day, you know. So um, hopefully we, we will be able to. Um, uh, there is a running club in Washington Correction Center, as, as you know, the end of the film, we saw that. Uh, Frank helped inspire that. Yesterday, we were at Grafton Men's Prison. Uh, and they started a run here in Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. They started a running club in May. And I can tell you there's testimony from the men in there, people who have lost all, lost weight already, run their half, first half marathons. Uh, very hopeful. Very hopeful. And what we're going to s- hopefully start to do, too, is maybe compare some records, you know, kind of virtually compare records and, you know, create that sense of community beyond the walls. What else do you think is needed um, to help spread these clubs? What would be most helpful that you've seen? Well, we, of course, we need resources to be able to do it. I mean, originally, I think what what's going to happen is that we're sort of spinning off this social impact side of the movie, the unexpected you know, social impact side. And the reason why we really felt it was important to get the film into more prisons is based off of the screening that we had inside San Quentin. You know, when they see Markel Taylor fulfill his dreams, they said, they told us, you know, it was a great reminder for us to have goals and dreams to retain a sense of hope. When they saw even how they, how the men spoke, about their crimes and the kind of insight that they shared. A lot of guys told us, this helped me prepare for my parole board hearing. Hmm. I'm going to start thinking about things differently. You know, uh, there's a scene with, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Tommy Wickard, he is struggling to be a father from prison. And there's a scene where his son explodes with anger, Mm -hmm. you know, and resentment about, not having a father around. And afterwards, a lot of guys came up and said, you know, I have a daughter. She was five years old when she when I got locked up. She's 20 now. I I bet she's has those feelings. And apparently that converse that the film ended up creating um a context for these men to have conversations with each other and share their own struggles and challenges about the relationships that they have with their kids. And we understand that that went way beyond into the cell block, like, you know, weeks afterwards and stuff. So we thought it was really important to like help create dialogue and, and, and all that. But yeah, also to hopefully uh, give us opportunity to talk with administration because administration ultimately has to approve the running clubs or any kind of, you know, and once they see that the buy-in and the excitement from the guys and how it can help improve their lives, you know, what I learned is um, what a lot of guys told me is, you know, having less security in prison, like a less, you know, show of force actually helps create more security. You know, if you got handcuffs on you all the time, of course, you're going to be resistant, right? You want to be free. But if, if uh, you know, if people treat you with respect, you probably will get treated back with respect. So where are we today in terms of more screenings of 26.2 to life in prisons? Well, well, first, before we do that, we are opening in theaters, you know, on Friday. <laughs> you mentioned actually. that. 
Yeah, which is very exciting. Uh, Hoka, the running shoe, uh, they are, are helping us do that in select cities across America, New York, L.A., Bay Area, Seattle, Milwaukee, hmm. and we'll have a special screening in Boston. And then we'll be doing a virtual presentation uh, with a special foreword by Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. He's a civil rights leader. Mm. So there's, and then we'll also have a very special Q and A that we filmed inside San Quentin, mm. also available only for virtual watchers. And so anybody anywhere can see the film at that time. But also, what Hoka did is that they donated shoes to the Thousand Mile Club, and hopefully, they'll be an ongoing partner for us. You know, as we move forward, and we're having discussions with other. Um, athletic wear companies to help us on our mission of moving forward. So, you know, we want to kind of get past this release first, which happens and it'll be over soon enough. Uh, but, uh, and then we can, uh, but we are, we're really hoping, you know, we, we really feel that by more people watching the film, it will help us, you know, spreading the story of the thousand mile club so that then it will allow us to make, Converse, bridge conversations with more prisons easier. So that's really what, by supporting the film, you're really supporting this idea of rehabilitation into more prisons across America. We're talking, it is Monday, September 18th. Tell us again some of the important dates for rollouts and where people can find the film, et cetera, just to make sure we're real clear on that. Yeah. So this Friday, this Friday, September 22nd, it will open in New York, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, Milwaukee for one week only mm. in theaters, y'all. Mm. It is one week only. We are a small independent organization. This is not a studio. You know, we decided that we want to see the film in theaters. Why? Because afterwards, uh, for a lot of these events, we will have members of the Thousand Mile Club people from our filmmaking team, the coaches there for Q&As to open up discussion, to have dialogue. We felt that that creating uh, a moment where we can interface with the audience uh, and hopefully inspire people to get involved yeah. in what we call a national movement yeah. was important. That's why we're going into theaters. Yeah. Okay. For everyone uh, that we can't reach because we're uh, a, a small organization here, we, the film will be available to everybody in the nation for 72 hours only from September 29th to October 1st. You can go on our website, sanquentinmarathon.com, and you can buy tickets there for both the virtual release and also the ticketing link will take you to all of the different places where you can buy you know, the theater tickets. And for our virtual release, We'll have bonus special content that's available. You can watch it on your computer, or if you have a Roku TV, you can uh, cast it on your Roku TV. Uh, so we hope you'll get together with your running clubs, uh, your you know community groups, uh, your friends, uh, and you know even pay it forward to help people that may not um, you know be able to afford a ticket uh, and bring them in to to see the film. This is definitely a word of mouth type of yep. thing. We don't have billboards. Uh, we don't have, uh, you know, anything like that. So it's definitely word of mouth. We really appreciate being here and uh, helping us spread the word. 
Last thing I want to ask you about before I let you go, the music of the film. Talk about it. Yes, it's very exciting. Um, on this 50th anniversary of hip hop, I'm really proud and excited to share that the music in this film, you know, everyone knows running and music go hand in hand. So I, you know, the music was such an important element to this movie and telling the story. All of the music that you're going to hear was is by currently or formerly incarcerated artists. A lot of the tracks that you hear, the songs, all of the raps, those were produced inside San Quentin. Uh, our film composer, Antoine Banks-Williams, I met him when he was still locked up at San Quentin. He paroled in uh, 2019, and that was able to really facilitate our creative collaboration. This is his first score. The guy's a genius. He's an amazing filmmaker as well. He's just one of these incredible all-around artists. I can't say enough like amazing things about this guy. Um, and then there's also a, a series of songs. Uh, a lot of the rap tracks are produced by David Jassy, who produced an album called San Quentin Mixtape Volume 1. You can see, stream it on Spotify. Again, all of these tracks were produced inside San Quentin and tell the stories you know, by, by young guys who are, you know, who are, who are talking about their lives. Christine, it's a remarkable thing you've made here. And it is a remarkable number of stories. Uh, often we watch a film and there, you know, I think we tend to concentrate on a single story or two and the layers and levels to this, uh, real people in a difficult situation it is remarkable that a running film is just spiraling into so many significant elements of society. It's quite a thing. And I um, appreciate your attention to this, the years you've spent on this. And I just hope uh, as many people as possible see this and as you've said get involved in a national reform movement um it would be amazing and that this all kind of comes from this very simple thing that we like to do sometimes hate to do uh but go run it's amazing yes i mean the running community as we know runners are highly motivated people you know That's we right. can do anything and some are very organized people too so i have a lot of hope that, you know, running, as we know, changes everything. And, you know, that means that we can change the world around us, too. Christine, thank you so much for the time for this project and um, all the best to you going forward. And uh, here's to forwarding the movement. Thank you so much for having me. That was this was amazing. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks so much to Christine for this conversation. And again, remember, go to sanquintonmarathon.com to learn more about how you can watch the film, as well as checking out the trailer of the film. That's at sanquintonmarathon.com. I also, of course, want to thank the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From our entire team here at Blister, please take good care of yourself. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again 
real soon.